This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. In this recording, our three speakers explore the legacy of the poet Basil Bunting. The speakers are Chair Matthew Sperling, Poet and Lecturer in English at University College London, Don Cher, Editor of the Poems of Basil Bunting, published by Faber, and Paul Batchelor, who reviewed the book in the autumn 2016 issue of the Poetry Review. The panel discussion was held at University College London on 21st September. Hello everybody, welcome to UCL. Thank you everybody for, for coming tonight for the launch uh, of this magnificent, enormous volume, The Poems of Basil Bunting. I'm very happy tonight to have with me Paul Batchelor and Don Cher. Don Cher is the editor of a Poetry Magazine based in Chicago and he's also the author of three books of poetry called Wishbone, Squandermania and Union, some of which were published in this country by Salt and then by Eyewear. And he's the editor of this, this volume of Basil Bunting's poems. And Paul is a poet and a critic who's the author of a book of poems called The Sinking Road, published by Bloodaxe, and a, uh, a slightly smaller book called The Love Dark, published by Clutag Press, and also the editor of a book of essays on Barry McSweeney, where he has an essay on uh, various topics, including Bunting's influence on Barry McSweeney. And Paul teaches English and creative writing at Durham University. Uh, well, I'm very excited to, uh, to have this event here tonight and also just to have this book in my hands because I feel like it's a book <laughs> I've, been, I've been waiting for uh, literally almost since childhood. I think I, I, think I probably, um, I probably heard, heard in 2006 that this, this edition was in the works when I heard Don Cher do a seminar where he sort of said it was largely edited and was on the way and somehow 10 years down the road it's finally arrived in this beautiful form. So it's a long-awaited book in that sense. I also feel like there's a certain kind of irony in having the launch for this here in the heart of Bloomsbury because Bunting spent some largely unhappy years in London. There's a passage at the start of section two of Brig Flat, his great poem and his autobiography in verse, where we see the figure of a young poet who's kind of walking across the Tottenham Court Road on the way to the pub in Fitzrovia, and he's described as walking among the bogus, despised by toadies, confidence men, kept boys. So he didn't have a very happy time in this part of town, and he also is on record as having resented what Bloomsbury stood for in literary terms, because as he said, the denizens of Bloomsbury were all of that well-to-do middle class bordering on country gentry who felt that if you couldn't afford to live in Bloomsbury or Regent's Park, well, poor devil, there wasn't much to be expected of you. In addition to that, he also, I think, considered T.S. Eliot's influence on on English letters after about the mid-1920s when Eliot was installed at Faber in Russell Square. He considered that largely a negative influence, and Eliot responded in kind by repeatedly declining to publish Bunting's poems. So there's a sign there of the kind of slightly testy relations Bunting had with the literary establishment and with English society in general, and with Faber. <laughs> so eventually, Bunting found his most important publisher in Fulcrum Press, a real startup press of sort of elected outsiders which happened in the mid-1960s under the editorship of Stuart Montgomery, who I'm very excited to have here tonight. But now, eventually, 50 or maybe 60 years overdue, we have Bunting in a big Faber edition. And I think that's, in some ways, a significant thing in the recent history of English poetry. 
So maybe that's something we can talk about a bit this evening. I thought what we might do to start, since there's probably some people here who don't know Bunting's work, is that Paul and Don and I would each read a passage or a poem of Bunting's. So maybe Don, you'd like to start. It's tempting to start with the first section of Brigflats because it's so famous, but I don't think anybody here can read Bunting's work the way he read his own work. And fortunately, there are many recordings that Richard Swig assembled in sets you can still find and hear. And on YouTube, you can hear Bunting reading Brigflats. And he, maybe we can talk about this, tended to read in a particular voice or accent that he felt was northern in character, although that's a subject of discussion. But he trilled his R's and did other other things that I could only do in the most awful simulacrum. So I thought I would read the coda to Brigflats, which is very short, very lovely. Brigflats was published first in Poetry Magazine, where I now work, in 1966. So this has been an anniversary year for that. And I think in some ways the belated attention to Bunting's work in some ways now. and how long it took Faber to get around to publishing the book, which is a great story in and of itself, makes it appropriate for me to read the coda to Brigflats because I think in a lot of ways this book is a, for better or worse, or better and worse, a coda to a brilliant, long career in poetry. So this is the coda to Brigflats. A strong song tows us, long ear sick. Blind we follow, rain slant, spray flick to fields we do not know. Night float us, offshore wind shout, ask the sea what's lost, what's left, what horn sunk, what crown adrift. Where are we who knows of kings who suck while day fails, who, swinging his axe to fell kings, guesses where we go? Yeah, it would be really good to talk about the voice, Bunting's voice, kind of a northern voice, but... Um... I'm from Northumberland as well, so I have strong feelings on this matter. I'm going to read one of his sort of very late poems, one of the last uh, lyrics that he wrote. It's from 1980 when Bunting was 80 years old. Actually, it's one of the few lyrics where you hear Bunting speaking in something like his own voice. Often in his work, he's wearing a mask or a part mask or mixing his voice with a particular kind of character or there's a quite a developed kind of irony. So it's relatively rare to hear him speaking as directly as this. And it's spoken by himself as an old man speaking to his boat about setting off on one last voyage. Now we've no hope of going back, Cutter, to that grey quay where we moored twice and twice unwillingly cast off our cables to put out at the slack when the sea's laugh was choked to a mutter and the leech lifted hesitantly with a stutter and sulky clack. How desolate the swatchways look, Cutter, and the charts stained, stiff, old, wrinkled and uncertain, seeming to contradict the pilot book. On naked banks a few birds strut to watch the ebb sluice through a narrowing gut loud as a brook. Soon, while that northwest squall rings out its cloud cutter, we'll heave to, free of the sands, and let the half moon do as it pleases, hanging there in the port shrouds like a riding light. We have no course to set, only to drift too long, watch too glumly, and wait, wait. I thought I would read Bunting's poem, A Song for Rustum, which is a poem 
I think it's not quite clear, but it was written, it's dated 1952 to 1964, I think, but he didn't show it to people. Well, no, he, well, he didn't show it to people or publish it, but he did send it to, to Louis Zukovsky in a letter. Uh, he was grieving the loss of his son. Yeah, and so. Uh, and I don't think he intended to publish it, uh, but it does appear in editions of his work. And we can talk about how spare Bunting was with his own beautiful poem. So, so, so Rustam was Basil Bunting's son who died at age 15 in 1952, but I think I'm right in saying Bunting had never in fact met this son because he's separated from his first wife in 1937 when she was, when she was pregnant. So he, he never met the son and then, and then heard that, that he had died. Um, and wrote this poem which I think is unusually direct and sort of arising from a personal occasion and unusually sort of regular in its stanzaic form in terms of what Bunting's work is, is, is more often like. This is a song for Rustam. Tears are for what can be mended, not for a voyage ended the day of a schooner put out. Short fear and sudden quiet, too deep for a diving thief. Tears are for easy grief. My soil is shorn, forests and corn. Winter will bear the rock. What has he left of pride whose son is dead? My soil has shaved its head. <coughs> the sky withers and stinks. Star after star sinks into the west by you. Whirling spokes of the wheel hoist up a faded day, its sky wrinkled and grey. Words slung to the gale stammer and fail. Unseen is not unknown, unkissed is not unloved, unheard is not unsung. Words late, lost, dumb. Truth that shone is dim, lies cripple every limb. Where you were, you are not. Silent, heavy air stifles the heart's leap. Truth is asleep. I suppose those three poems we've chosen collectively present Bunting as, in a way, a rather simpler writer than, than he is in total, because there's lots in the work which, in common with, with some of his, his modernist friends and contemporaries and predecessors, engages very erudite and uh, strange matter from history and mythology and from literature, all of which in today's literary climate seems a little bit old-fashioned in some ways. So I suppose I wanted to ask Don uh, the question, why is Bunting important today? What can, we, what can we take from Bunting? I think Bunting was always important, but one of the sort of sub-narratives this critical edition has been a kind of story of heartbreak and generosity that I think is something Bunting never spoke about directly, wouldn't have. And that is that unlike Pound and Eliot, and to some extent Zukovsky, Bunting was published by people who cherished him or cherished people who knew him. So he didn't have the luxury of being published for the first many decades of his career in the kinds of books that would have gotten him attention, reviews, and acclaim. I mean, his first book was kind of self-published his very first book remained in typescript, was never published. He was writing a long time, and then a sort of act, you know, uh, sort of under, would be understudy of Ezra Pound, 
and some other people published an edition of Bunting's poems kind of late in 1950, a de fully defective edition that Bunting never had the luxury to correct and prove which was characteristic, I think, of many appearances of Bunting's work in magazines also. And so it really wasn't until Stuart Montgomery's Fulcrum Press that Bunting got his due, but he'd been writing for a long time, and his work was circulating, and he was known, and Bunting was circulating, living in all kinds of places, ranging from Rapallo to Tenerife, you know, to Tehran. He was, he was moving around a lot. Mm. And so he didn't have, I mean, I mean, he didn't have the typical modernist career, when you think of it, of Eliot sort of working at the bank or being in Faber all the time, <laughs> or Stevens, you know, working in the insurance company. <laughs> Bunting was always doing very <coughs> odd, adventurous things that are very hard to document. But he wasn't around in the way that a poet might have been around. So his work turns out to be important because it was important and meant something to, to poets from Yeats on forward. And even if Eliot didn't want to publish him because Eliot felt insulted by some essay that Bunting had published in Poetry Magazine. <laughs> there were other reasons besides that, you know, supposedly that he was too Poundian, which is crazy because he's not very Poundian. There were always reasons why Bunting's career didn't advance, and one of the ironies of this book's being held up for 10 years is consistent with that. It was His, his career was sort of beset with setbacks. But, but he weathered them and was very gracious about it. I mean, he was always grateful to people who took the interest in his work enough to publish it. And he never criticized anybody, you know, for trying to collect his work, even if there were errors in it and so on. And so Bunting, you know, when I started work on the edition in 2000, which is very late, there weren't a lot of critical works on Bunting. There was the Peter Macon book, you know, there were other things. But by about then, Bunting was really out of print. After Fulcrum Press went away, he briefly was published by Oxford University Press, but then Oxford University Press killed its line of contemporary poetry. So Bunting was out of print again. By 1980, when Bunting was 80, a tiny press in the US, Moyer Bell, published a version of his collected poems, a small edition, almost unnoticed. So Bunting circulated, but in a way his work didn't. But the people that we think of as modernists knew all about Bunting. Yeats called him one of Pound's more savage disciples. That's early. And then, you know, things like Brigflats meant a lot. By this time, we're talking 1966, Brigflats, a long poem, appears in Poetry Magazine. By that time, I mean, I think many people know the story that Bunting was impoverished and he was working, even though his eyesight was bad, as a proofreader working in the, in the newspaper in Newcastle, looking at numbers, peering through thick spectacles. And I mean, he was pretty washed up as a poet in some ways, but, but Tom Picard, a young poet of the North, as he still is, wanted to bring Bunting back and has him read at Morden Tower. And Bunting is awakened, and then we have Brickflat. So there were sort of second acts in Bunting's career as a poet and codas to, to it, which I think include the present moment when now his work is accessible, presumably will stay in print. You know, something is happening. Now, when I first, I think when I first met Paul up at Durham a few years ago, well, when I started work on this edition, all of his work was out of print and nobody was doing critical work on it, no one was editing anything, there was nothing going on. And now, when I met Paul, there was a conference up there, there were, I met 10 or 12 grad students from all over the world writing on Bunting, and we were talking. And, and uh, sort of all the things I had to discover on my own, or with the help of the late 
Rick Cadell, who faithfully edited the Blood Axe version, which I left aside for a second, and we'll get back. And Peter Macon. I mean, there were people doing things, but they were few and far between. And he wasn't picked up sort of on the curriculum to speak of, so, so he's kind of not really visible. Now, the Blood Axe book is very interesting because uh, the late Rick Cadell, who was a poet who adored Bunting's work, was managed to pull together Bunting's version of his collected poems that, that Fulcrum had really put out. And then uh, Cadell um, augmented that with uncollected poems, things which it's quite clear Bunting never intended to be reprinted or published in any way. And then that became, when Oxford picked up Cadell's work, a kind of companion volume. They came and went, these volumes, though the Blood Axe book has been back in print. But when I started working, none of these things were easily available. They were sort of hard to come by, and nobody was, there wasn't any movement. I think uh, when I used to go around, it's funny because I would go around and talk to poets about bunting, and some of them would just say unaccountable things. Jeffrey Hill told me he loathed bunting. <laughs> and I said, why? I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. And Bunt, uh, Hill said, bunting was some kind of symbolist. <laughs> it was remarkable. So I kept, you know, even in my own work running into setbacks, which I also encountered at Faber, running through a couple of poetry editors there, things that never happened, things that were supposed to take place, things that didn't. And so it's sort of an odd career for a poet. I mean, we live in a climate where a young poet, you know, we had the forward prizes last night. A poet's career can really take off to great heights, sometimes quickly and sometimes in due course. Bunting was sort of not part of that, but he didn't, I think he didn't wish to be part of it. There's no evidence he really wanted to be taken up in any way, you know, late in life, when he needed the money, people would offer him gigs, giving lectures. He would turn them down. He said he had nothing to say. Mm. You know, he felt that, you know, he felt that he'd done what he, he'd done. It's, it's, there's something inscrutable and also perverse about it. I mean, Bunting was austere. What's ironic is that of the modernists, in a way, he was the most austere. Pound got his ideas about condensation really from Bunting, but Bunting really did condense. He pared down the sort of scope of his work when it was collected, to, it was too austere. I mean, he left aside wonderful poems, you know. I mean, and he, but he knew someday somebody was going to come along and do what I did, and he hated that idea too. He tried to close off, <laughs> you know, he didn't want, you know, he, he, he felt it would be like sort of maggots trolling through the cor corpse, you know. He, mm. he really didn't want it, but in some unguarded moments, he let on that if he wasn't around anymore, then, it, then people could do do it. He said that in an interview. I mean, he sort of, I think, you know, our best poets know things before everybody else does it. I think Bunting knew that a moment would probably come for his work, but he didn't count on it. He didn't invest in it. He had no hope for it. But some part of him knew this. Another aspect of Bunting's austerity is he tended to destroy draft material, you know, so that people like me who want to do interesting scholarly excavations are denied the material to work with. It's marvelous. Um, I'm especially happy that Stuart Montgomery is here because I tried to get in touch with him a long time ago. He probably no reason to remember it. and We almost met and then it didn't happen. I will ask him about this, but the disposition, you know, even archival material at his publishers was hard to come by. What is the disposition? What's the proof material for the poems? I talked to Oxford University Press, and they said, no, we threw it off, we disposed of that. We have a file on the books, but we don't retain that sort of thing. You know? And a lot, so a lot of people who published his work didn't have things you could look at to learn more. 
wherever the Fulcrum Press archive or materials went, it wasn't available to me or to anybody else for a long time and isn't, as far as I know, accessible now. And I don't know what it consists of, if anything. So in a way, the sort of routes that people travel to to find Bunting were closed off, with the exception of anthologies, where he was well represented with selections from Brig Flats or Villon. Villon was a poem of his in 1930. Bunting was 29, 30 years old. He had, uh, you know, taken up Villon. He, uh, he and Pound were interested in Villon and a drunken rampage in Paris. Uh, the story is that Bunting gets thrown into prison. He realizes it's the same prison, apparently, that Villon had been kept in. And so we have this poem, Villon, published in Poetry Magazine in 1930, which is really his first kind of adult serious publication as a poet and that poem or a part of it appears in anthologies but he was sort of always a byway in the study of English poetry and so the present moment is different we have at our disposal lots of ways into the poetry strangely I think it's very strange and eerie that we never had before um, and one of the one of the sort of joys of this edition is the way that um, the annotations managed to gather every recoverable scrap of comment that Bunning ever made about his poems, which are printed in the annotations to this in bold face, so you can very clearly kind of hear his voice talking about his own work. Well, um, he, even though he didn't, he didn't like notes, yeah. as we know from Brick Flats, the strangest thing was he didn't want people doing sort of research, and yet he interviewed with people copiously. There are dozens and dozens of interviews with him. There are many recordings of him giving wonderful poetry readings, and when you listen to them, he talks about the work. <laughs> there are audio interviews with him, so he sort of copiously talked about what he did, but none of that material had made its way into very much. There's Peter Macon's book and Sister Victoria Ford wrote a book, yeah. for, a wonderful book for Blood Axe. These were sort of the main critical studies of Bunting's career, and they were able to make use of things like letters and, and interviews and things like that, which are the basis for us to do this. But I had to go beyond that, because as you heard in the readings, Bunting's vocabulary was very you know, sort of peculiar and recondite, even for a northerner, I would say. <laughs> and so there's a lot of interesting things that go into it, but I think, I mean, I mean, it was time for somebody to sort of poke around in that way mm. a little bit. The other, you know, Macon and, and Ford sort of were talking about, you know, Bunting as a person and a poet, and it made his work appealing, but didn't, they, those books didn't exist to sort of explain in any particular detail, the textures of the writing, which is, I think, what's most striking now, again, as you will have heard in his work. Macon looks great. It's so comprehensive. I've sometimes wondered if, if that's been part of the problem, that it's <laughs> you know, the fir what, one of the first people to write on, on Bunting, Peter Macon, writes this a huge booth. Lovely book. Um, th this is actually, that's just the Bunting sort of lectures and prose. Oh, those are, right, those are the lectures. Um, yes, it's the shaping of his verse, shaping, which was yeah. an OUP press yeah. book, cost a fortune now. Right? And it's it's a big study, right. and it's sort of the first thing written on him, and it's massive and really yeah. intimidating. So I think that might have... Well, and it was full of kind of, I mean, it's not theorizing the way we would describe it now. It wasn't sort of postmodernist, mm -hmm. right? But Macon speculated in very great and well-documented detail, but some of that I think was slightly, I won't say it's wrong-headed, but, but much is made of things, and then other things sort of go kind yeah. of unnoticed. Or, you know, there's a lot, a lot written about, you know, the Lindisfarne yeah. Gospels and things like that, which are, you know, very important. But I think, I think Macon had a vision of Bunting's poetry, which was actually consistent with Bunting's vision, but it, things weren't put the way I think Bunting would have seen them. 
And so it's a quite a misleading. It's a wonderful book. It's a great book, but it's a little misleading, I think. I think it takes you down a certain path, and then, and then it's hard to get back from it. Yeah. Because it is so, it's an ingenious book. Hmm. And you're never really sure about something you just touched on, whether the, um, the difficulties Bunting faced in getting into print and finding readers, how imposed they were on him and how much he sort of courted that. Even with the, the biography, which is very thorough, he's inscrutable. You can't tell whether he's deliberate. Sometimes he's clearly spoiling it for himself, yeah. and just alienating someone who could be a great patron of his work. And at other times you do just think, no, he really does just have rotten luck. And it's, it, yeah, you never well, really had, get to He the did have rotten luck, but I think it worked out okay. But there were funny twists and turns everywhere. So for instance, when I started working on this book, I wanted to get permission from Bunting's estate to include unpublished material from letters and things like that. And so this is a long time ago now, and the estate said no. They'd given me permission to do all kinds of other things, but not to publish easily accessible material, you know, in terms of going to, say, the archive at Durham or, or the University of Texas, the Harry Ransom Center. You know, you can go look at this stuff, but they wouldn't let me publish quotations from it. And at one point I asked John Halliday, who's the executor, I said, why? why? And he said, well, you know, Basil was a pathological liar. <laughs> it was yeah. just another astounding. I never expected anything like that. I don't know what that, what he meant by that. I mean, you know, I think Bunting a little bit is like Frost. You know, depending on who he was talking to or why, Bunting would tell a certain sort of story or version of something. You know, some of this it seems quite improbable. Some of it does seem sort of made up. And some of it is it's the kind of stuff that a poet would say, given a certain moment and a certain yeah. kind of audience. A poet would say. That. So I said, I said to. John Halliday, well, you know, people will understand, you know, when we put them out there, they sort of fill in the story, and people understand. Yeah. It's not, not responsible biography. These are things the poet said. Yeah. But we have records of them, and you can't, you know, why leave them out? They're wonderful. And so they did relent. It was easy. I didn't have to, to work very hard. But that is very telling, that, you know, his his family had this idea, well, you know, Basil was best. Yeah, it's like what can you work with here? I mean, I mean, at every point there's there's something that you know. It's like the Prisoner TV show where the gate comes crashing down. <laughs> so this biography uh, by Richard Burton of Bunting came out in 2013, I think, and it's a very authoritative job. But one of the pleasures of it is that on almost every page there's things which are totally unverifiable because mm -hmm. Bunting just told them to somebody at some stage. So it has all sorts of extraordinary and wild stories which may or may not have happened, but they go towards fashioning this myth or this idea of himself as a figure and as a poet. He is a little bit po-faced, Richard Burton. I mean, one of my favourite stories that Bunting told was that he went to London Zoo and saw a bear, and the bear recognised it. <laughs> <laughs> because it had been a, a pet of the Turkish ambassador when it was a cub. So they'd met once before. And, and, the, and, and Burton does point out that this is, this is probably not true. <laughs> well, there's the, there's a, the really famous story about Bunting. Bunting is in Tehran in the early 50s. The CIA coup happens, and Mossadegh is starting to throw Westerners, especially British people, and the newspaper and the journalist out. The story is Bunting was a spy, but we don't know what he did. And Bunting didn't have much to say about it either, but I mean, I think a lot of people in that part of the world were either, you would call them spies, they would have a gin and tonic with somebody and tell you what's going on. And Bunting liked to hang around with the Bakhtiari tribesmen. He got along famously with, with all kinds of people. He loved, he loved 
Persian culture and Persian poetry. It was really a self-taught expert in it. So the story is that when they're starting to throw people out and it's getting dangerous, that outside uh, Bunting's apartment building, a crowd gathers and in English is shouting, death to Mr. Bunting, death to Mr. Bunting. And the story is that he, he looks out and they don't, of course, recognize him. They were supposedly put up to do this. He goes down and joins the crowd and starts shouting death to Mr. Bunting, death to Mr. Bunting. I mean, you know, this story is so well to, told and so often told it might as well be true, but when you think, you know, as I'm in a role to do as sort of an, a critical editor, you know, when I think about stuff like that, I think, I can't, that's a ridiculous story. It's a great story. It could well be true. So many improbable things happen to Basil that we know are true. For instance, when he has to leave uh, Tehran, he drives back to England in a car. <laughs> With his family, you know, and the car's broken down. He has no money, no job, nothing. He drives home. I mean, I mean, now that did happen. So, so in a way, you're right. I mean, for people who want to know, Bunting is it, like all these amazing wild stories are gathered by Burton in the biography. They can't all be true. They don't all add up. There are things that aren't accounted for. But no one could do it. I mean, what's good about about uh, Richard Burton's book is he just gets them all together so that they're in one place for it yeah. for the first time. <laughs> and some of them do well. According to Burton, are true. There's a great one about he was cavorting with a couple of Persian girls. Was it in Italy when he was visiting Pound? Somehow or other, they happened upon they discovered some Vivaldi manuscript <laughs> of new music that no one had ever heard. And apparently, this turns out to be sort of a slightly exaggerated version of the truth. Yeah. So there's these moments. It's like. Um, Nick Carwin and Gatsby or something, mm -hmm. just where just when you think this guy is a, is a pathological liar, you know, there's some one of these wild stories turns out to be true. Yeah, there are still people who know him. Obviously, they're in a position to verify or tell their own versions of stories. Like Tom Picard is a wonderful inspiration. Anybody who cares about Bunting and sort of carries the torch and all that stuff. But I mean, <laughs> there are also people like Colin Sims, a great friend of Basil's who we saw in Durham in the first and only annual Basil Bunting Conference, <laughs> which was held by grad students at Durham University. And so we were up there for this thing. And Colin Sims comes, and he's notoriously cranky. And if there's anybody crankier than Bunting, it had to be Colin Sims, who was a poet and a sort of a nature expert. You know? And so Colin comes. And he's got what he calls the Basil Bunting Archive, which is this enormous collection of photos and notes and stuff like that. And it was a great coup of the conference that we thought we'd talked Colin Sims into doing a slideshow to so show these great photos that never people had never really seen of Bunting. So they set up the slide projector. Colin comes and he says, I don't have the slides. I didn't bring them. I mean, he just, he just, just d decided not to bring the slides. So we didn't have, so what Colin Sims does is he clicks the clicker for the slide carousel and he says now the first one I would have showed you <laughs> so then Colin brings out he has just lugged these things up to this conference he notes papers letters drafts you know a gold mine for a scavenger like me I say Colin you know he's elderly and not particularly well and I said Colin you know I'm not the only one to tell you you can't just sit on this stuff it will go it has to be cared for you need to find someone you can give it to that person you trust or give it to the archive in Durham or the university, you know, anybody or anything, but you can't just hold on to it because it will vanish, it will be destroyed. 
and he said, um, well, I don't, I don't care, and Basil wouldn't have cared, which I think is true. So at this conference, there was a table, and Colin laid out a few things, a couple, a couple of manuscripts, <laughs> some letters, a note that got slipped under the door, imploring you know, that they get together and have gin and somewhere. <laughs> I mean, the wonderful stuff. And then mysteriously, after a short period of time, Colin Sims packs this thing up, lectures us all about how we suck, and then he just like goes, <laughs> goes back home with the stuff which I think might never be seen again. I mean, I mean, this is the, I mean, the great thing about Bunting is the poetry is wonderful, and and interesting, and unlike almost anything else that you'll see or hear. On the other hand, the man himself is sort of an endless mystery, and the in, the sort of conventional attempt to reconcile these things is really kind of impossible. I mean, it's possible to explain anything, in a way, by the conventional route of biography, as endlessly interesting as it all is. I mean, in the end, what's really right is that Bunting knew and was right that we would have the poems and no more. Yeah. And so we, we've talked a bit about this kind of um, self-mythologizing thing in, in his life and the way he spoke about it. Is there anything useful for that to be taken in, in reading the work? I mean, is, is there something similar going on in the way he fashions himself as poet from work to work. I think so. I mean, you don't you don't need that stuff, but it enhances it. I mean, that, again, the most compelling way, if you don't read Bunting on the page, is to get these recordings of his readings, where the readings are wonderful. Mm. You know, and he reads other poets too, you know, Wyatt or Spencer, and he says incredibly fascinating things. Then you sort of get used to what he says and what he sounds like. The poems are then things you can apprehend on the page in a different register. Like a lot of poetry, you don't have to hear the poet read the work. It's always a good, not always, often a good thing to hear that. And it helps with Bunting. In a way, that austerity pays off. Bunting wouldn't have condescended to a reader. And you have to, you know, I think you have to puzzle your way through as best you can. It's a pleasure in poetry to do that. Bunting's work, when you first look at it, doesn't seem very difficult, and then the more you look at it, the more difficult it becomes. I think that's a fascinating kind of pleasure of Bunting's work. I mean, most people can just read through Brickletts and when it comes across. But yeah. then when you read and, you know, sort of poke around a little bit, it becomes more and more interesting, compelling and moving when you know sort of what the story is behind it. This girl that he liked as a young man, and then he doesn't see her for decades and decades and decades. And he's quite elderly, and she is too. And they sneak around. Gail Turnbull tells the story, you know, how they kind of sneakily reunite. And all these years, Bunting has missed this girl and thought about her. And they get together, and it's not, not going to work out. It's not gonna, but they have to keep it kind of a secret so they don't get in trouble. She's married, you know, and they, did, you know, they don't want to hurt anybody. And it's sort of a great fizzled you know, romance where it's wonderfully bunting-esque, if there's such a word, that there's this wonderful romance in a poem and it gets deflated. He gets by. It's a great story of kind of survival of all kinds of improbable things. I mean, there are no happy endings <laughs> mm. in bunting, but there are endings and they're, they're, they're beautiful endings. I always think of Brig Flats. I suppose one part of me doesn't believe a word of it and thinks, you know, that this is a very likely story that, <laughs> that his whole life was 
misery and missing this girl that he loved when he was extremely young. Thinking that with one half of my mind doesn't spoil the poem. It, the poem is a kind of autobiography of his own myth of himself, and myths of self are crucial to any self. I think that's how the, the poem operates. It describes itself as, a, as an autobiography, and it is one, but it, it's of a very peculiar kind. It is, especially in the context of modernism. That, for instance, Eliot would never explicitly call anything autobiographical. <laughs> I mean, so so I mean, Bunting was sort of at the fringes of modernism, and I think part of it is because, as a Northerner, he objected to the the coine. You know, the idea that I mean, for for Bunting, Wordsworth did not speak standard English and is misunderstood. The prosody is misunderstood, and the poets are. The poems aren't apprehended properly. Same with Keats. So there was no way that Bunting was going to be a conventional urban modernist. It wasn't those things. And I think he, he was a real contrarian, but in the deepest sense. So to call Brickflats an autobiography when it's recondite in terms of autobiographical information, <laughs> it's a fascinating thing to do. It's full of all kinds of strange things about northern history, about Alexander, you know. Slow worms. I mean, it's as autobiographical material goes. It's sparse in that regard. I He's insistent. Think about of this. it in terms of the more um, so. It's, you know, autobiography has its roots in religious writing and, and spiritual autobiographies. They had a particular structure to them, and it was a, it, you would tell your life story and how you were a sinner, and then you saw the light and you were saved. The narrative was set in a fixed thing. Writing your autobiography, you was expected you'd be influenced following other people's autobiographies. Well, and then the question of his, he can be construed as a Quaker poem because of Brick Flats Meeting House, a smaller poem that comes later. Even in the letters page of the TLS recently, I mean, this gets debated all the time. I mean, it's quite clear, I mean, to me, if it's okay, for me, of all people, to say, Bunting wasn't a Quaker, but he was influenced by things in the landscape that had deep and long connections to, to Quaker stuff. He gets completely steered by people who want to understand something about him, and it never works. There can only be an imperfect understanding of these things or an imperfect criticism that follows on, on them. Like Stevens is striking because he doesn't even, you know, does he need a biography? Like, what did he do? Where did he go? We have the poems. Do you work on those? It's a strange thing. It's fun to read about what Bunting did, and there's enough material for this huge Richard Burton book, but in the end, you start out no wiser, yeah. which I think is what Bunting counted on. And maybe we could talk a bit about the process of making a, a critical edition. This edition has textual annotations and, and detailed bibliographical histories and also uh, lists of, of variants collated from lots of different print and, and manuscript sources. So it's a real wealth of information which previously was either unknown or, or certainly not gathered in one place before. And we've talked a bit about some of the difficulties of, sort of just access to material. Mm -hmm. Were there any decisions about about making this book that were hard to make. Intrinsically, what's difficult is knowing what the poet wanted and didn't want and then doing something different. Mm. I mean, there's precedent for this, and it's a useful kind of conversation to have so that Archie Burnett's Larkin has all that stuff in it that, you know, I suppose does Larkin no credit, but it gathers up all kinds of uncollected things. And then the recent two-volume Eliot that Christopher Ricks and Jim McHugh 
edited for Faber also has, you know, the embarrassing poems that just came out about, you know, yeah. his wife, is, he likes tall girls and all that <laughs> horrible stuff. So for better or worse, this edition has some of that too. Bunting, only slightly less scurrilous than Eliot, but he's not racist. No King Bolo poems in this book. There are things in it that I put in there because they were out there anyway. And I think to ignore them doesn't tell the whole story of the poet's work. So I put things in there that were not sort of secreted away in some kind of, you know, hidden ribbon wrapped collections of letters, things like that. I mean, they, these are things that bunting people know about, and I just put them in one place and annotated them and tried to figure out what was going on with them. And those are things that bunting would, would really have hated, and, and you know, but they, but they sort of round out the picture somewhat. I mean, you had to see what what these guys are up to, Elliot Larkin, it, it sort of rounds something out and needs to be done if you're being responsible. So the decision was made, at first I was reluctant to do it. Faber felt like if there's one opportunity to put a big book together, we should put that stuff in it, so we decided to do it. But the annotations are weird, I think. There is some draft material of poems, but not extensive draft material. So what I wanted to do was track the textual variance in all the printings of Bunting's poems because that's really interesting to see how errors, you know, creep in as they always do. Just to track that, to show there is a sub-narrative, as I mentioned before, about Bunting being published by people who are in a way devoted to him rather than presses that had, you know, proofreaders and copy editors and staffs of people checking things, you know. He didn't have that really. And so the documenting the textual variance kinds of shows how in the 20th century, poets who are published by small-ish presses undergo a very different kind of textual reception in history than they do if you've always been like Eliot, published by Faber, you know, that kind of stuff. It's a very different narrative there. So I wanted to document that. One of the, the most bizarre aspects of this is that in this book, it was supposed to have been published many years ago, and it just wasn't for yeah. reasons that are too ridiculous to get into, I think. But the book was delayed for about 10 years, and then suddenly this past spring, Faber decided to go ahead and, as you said, they had the book, and they went ahead and wanted to do it, and they gave me a few weeks to go over the proofs right. of a, a large book, and I, you know, and I said, we can't, you can't, we can't do that. I mean, that's not responsible, and we kind of had to do it because the press perceived that it was the Brick Flats anniversary, and so they wanted the book out. There were other anniversaries that didn't mean anything to them yeah. in favor, so that we had to go forward with it. And now there are four typos in the book <laughs> that I will tell you about if you buy it out personally. Two of them are, are quite minor in the annotation. There are two in the text of the poems. It's heartbreaking. So I have contributed to my own <laughs> documentation of these errors. And so one of them, one of them is a pretty bad typo. It's in, it's not in a poem Bunting published himself, fortunately or not, but it's in a poem that P Peter Quartermain transcribed and put in an article that he published in a literary magazine and then in a book of his. And then it's a squib from Hadrian, and the word softy was corrected by Faber to read softly. It's a disaster. It's terrible. So I've just been harassing them over here. A funny thing about what Faber did, I don't think, see, they're right around the corner. I feel guilty. They made a very beautiful book after, after a long time. But one of the things that was sort of weird about it was when I first turned in the text of the poems, which are, of course, the most important thing, 
they don't really have copy editors and proofreading proofreaders these days even at big presses so they have I worked with a designer who was actually a very diligent guy so the first thing the designer did was he took the text of the poems that I was very careful to get right and, and was responsible for getting right and they introduced 300 changes because they were getting the poems to conform to house style <laughs> so bunting like pound say you know a word like don't he tended to omit the apostrophe, you know, won't. And so the, the, the very diligent people at Faber sort of reinserted these, <laughs> or they repunctuated things. I mean, I'm not sure why they did that, so I get this thing back with 300 errors, in addition to whatever errors I would have had. And I had to tell them, no, we have to go back and start over. Right. And so we had very little time to do it, so now, really heartbreakingly, there's a uh, one significant error, and you know the press is marketing this as the you know the authoritative. <laughs> it's sort of poetic justice. I feel like Basil's kicking my ass beyond. I'm told they might correct it. So you know, if you all buy copies and they sell enough, that never happens. You know, in poetry, there's only one act in the printing of a poetry book. That process, I mean, it's sort of a tip. It's sort of bunting ask. You know, that things get bunged up although good intentions are everywhere mixed in with the bad. The variants are there for the print edition so you can see how things evolved in that. Since the annotations are the heart of the book, the Fulcrum editions, the Oxford and Blood Axe editions were very well done. Richard Cadell, who put the Blood Axe and Oxford editions together, did not conceive of himself as a scholarly editor. He wanted somebody, he said, like me to come along and do this. We worked together, but he died. Uh, he died too soon of leukemia, so he, I had his blessing, and he wanted this book to be what you see now. And he made decisions differently than I do, but they're fairly minor. Um, so the heart of this book is the annotations, because it does include the stuff, as you say, that, as you've said, that Bunting said about his own work, which is really wonderful and helpful. And then a lot, I looked at dictionaries of northerning, you know, dialects and things to really sort of flesh out things. And also, I list, I created a bibliography of all the books Basil Bunting seemed to have owned because I wanted to correlate Bunting's ref, frame of reference with the books that he, re, that he had, and it was quite interesting. I mean, Bunting was you know, sort of an autodidact, and he was very well read, but he read a lot of weird stuff too. But, I mean, you can trace back. It's not just northern terminology. It's not just poetry talk. There are things in there that are that are underwritten by his passion for certain kinds of poets and novels and other books that he had, as well as his interest in Persian poetry. Mm -hmm. So I tried to put together annotations that show how this worked, how he may have gotten to the poems as we see them. Mm -hmm. And that's really fascinating stuff. I mean, notes usually, Bunting called them an irritation, you know, yeah. and they can be. But these were designed to sort of be crazy in the sense that his mind was all over the place. It was rooted in the landscape, and yet it was roaming everywhere. And so I wanted to show how that made the poetry possible. I was just recently reading Mark Ford's review of that two-volume Eliot edition, where I think, rightly, he comments on the, the slight mania of the kind of annotations in that book, where, you know, proof rock begins with, let us go then. And then there's a sort of annotation saying, oh, Daniel Deronda, page 465, yeah. someone says, let us go then, and it's just a thing people say. There's a question of where to draw the line when you're doing this stuff. Well, I have to confess that Christopher Ricks 
was my mentor. Most people don't learn how to do critical editions. There aren't programs that instruct people in that. But Christopher and Jeffrey Hill did set up one, which is now going under in Boston, the Editorial Institute. I was learning from Christopher and also Archie Burnett, who was there, how to do this like Elliot and Larkin thing with the, main, the maniac annotation. I think, you know, people like Mark Ford say that, other people say it too, and they do have a point. I mean, the question is, what are these things really helpful? Mm -hmm. But I sort of do lean towards Rick's. I think they are helpful. I mean, poets don't just come, to, you know, poetry doesn't like spring from the forehead mm -hmm. in a lightning bolt. What poets do is informed by what means something to them. What a poet has in his or her library is part of the functioning mind of the poet. What things preoccupy them can not all be documented, but many things can be. And so seeing patterns and traits and expressions that do have a lineage in literature, it's good to have that sort of worked out for you so you can see, well, this is what underwrites the poetry. It's not essential, but it's part of what you might want to know if you're interested in yeah. a poet's work. Like, what, how did we get to the quirky poetry you know, that you heard a small sample of? And, and you can find that out if you, if you want to. That's what a big book like this does. And for people who don't need any information, or the reader's edition, the Blood X and Now New Directions editions that Rick, Rick Cadell put together are still in print and they're inexpensive. And Blood X now, you know, you can get brick flats with the, the DVD and the CD and all that stuff. They're great. And those are for people who just, they just want some of the poems. But I think you want to read a poet like Bunting sort of gets you curious about many things and you just keep going with it so the book is is really to set that out a strange constellation of things that were in the poet's mind the typo is very nice and <laughs> it does at least underline the point that you, you can't have a definitive life or a definitive text that do yeah. exist in many different forms people who are who do tend to self-fashion themselves and refashion themselves they, they tend to be very persuasive um, at it so so you get various incarnations of yeah. Bunting and, and people like Colin Sims are, are very taken with one of them and, and hostile to others. Are there questions that people might have? Yes. As you were saying there with the bibliography, does that represent an autobiography perhaps of the mind or the, yeah. the spirit in the way that people talk about the Peace and Cantos being an autobiography, not so much of what Pound was going through at that stage, but just what he had available? I think the quintessential characteristic of modernists, if there's such a thing, is that they're bookish people. So that in a way, the biography of these poets does consist of things like books, literary source materials, other poems, other books. So I very keenly felt for, uh, I think honestly, more for Bunting than for Eliot and even Larkin. More for Bunting that, yes, this stuff is really a better kind of biography of the poet than we would have in a narrative like Burton. There's stories in it, a, few, a bunch of photos. You come away none the wiser, but then you set yourself thinking, why were books and texts so important to Anglo-American modernist poets? I have in my office a picture of Charles Olson's author photo that he sent to Poetry Magazine in 1962 as a contributor. And he's sitting at a sort of a wooden homemade desk of, or table of some kind in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Up to his ears in books. There's books on the floor, books on the table up, up to here. There's a map of the harbor behind I mean, it's just like, and there's nothing else there. Like this place where Olson wrote. It was books. It was textual stuff. That's what he was surrounded with. Now, Bunting couldn't carry all this stuff around with him when he was on a boat or 
you know, in jail for being a conscientious objector during World War One or something. I mean, nothing was lost on Bunting, and all of that sort of factored into the texture of what he was up to. He d he didn't want to put it that way, and he never put it that way either. Uh, but it's undeniably that, that way. And that goes along with the bookish and the and the non bookish as in these and cantos that are all mixed up together. The poem that I read, the address to the to the boat late in life, it's a very personal one about we'd set out twice before and once more. And that's sort of the the two failed marriages that are behind him and he knows that he's gonna be alone till he dies now and that's that's sort of what the the poem is saying. And I think that's very heartfelt and true and personal. But that poem is also in very close conversation with a Cavalcanti poem yeah. as is Cavalcanti's greatest poem where he's addressing the poem itself, saying, go and speak to my beloved. And that's a poem that Pound translated twice, mm -hmm. and that Zukowski translates, and his really is, is the, the great, I think it's A11. It's one of the most beautiful things in the language, and this little this tiny section of, in, in A by Zukowski, where he's jumping off from Cavalcanti as well. Mm -hmm. So by doing, in that poem, even though it has a very clear surface meaning, Bunting's also speaking to Pound, who died, Zukowski, from whom he was estranged by that point. So the loneliness that the poem's expressing is also written into the form of the poem and the background and so on, so, which is incredibly literary and bookish mm -hmm. and modernist, but not in a way that overpowers or contradicts the emotional charge of the lyric at the same time. And that's, that's fairly typical. You get that throughout Bunting, yeah. that the marriage of the two, you know, very intelligent, very literary work. Even in his Persian poems, which I've sort of collected and redeployed here, because he tended not to include a lot of very good things. I mean, he taught himself Persian. It's a great story, too. You know, he sees this book on a <laughs> bookstall in Paris, and he teaches himself Persian to read this epic work in the book that he comes by, it's all tattered, you know, and then it sort of runs out, it's one volume, he wants to know what happens, so he sort of keeps going Persian all his life, ostensibly to read Persian poetry. He claims, I think accurately at one point in a letter to Zukovsky, that he knows more about Persian poetry than the academics do, probably true. And so he does all these versions or translations of Persian poetry. He goes there and he absorbs the culture and loves the people that he meets, but really what got that going was book, a book. Bizarre. A couple of years ago, I was invited to this thing at the University of Chicago called the Persian Circle. They have this group, study group. It's conducted in Persian. And I was the only speaker there ever invited who knows no Persian. And I read to them some of Basil's versions or translations, or he would call them overdrafts, of these Persian poems. And these guys start freaking out. And they said, you know, the English language translations of of our poems are terrible, but these are good. The, who is this Basil Bunting? These are good. They get the spirit exactly right. Uh, it was remarkable. Bunting went farther along. You know, we think of Eliot as being, oh, he's the mind of Europe and all that stuff. But Bunting was moving around all over the globe. I mean, he was an internationalist, and yet we think of him as a poet of the North, which he was. I mean, he, he, the regional, sort of the dialect um, and terminology of the North is quite a modernist project to be so deeply rooted in a one particular place and have a very regional politics that is well in advance of things like Scottish nationalism. I mean, it's ahead of the curve with this stuff, or antipathy towards the Southerners, South Rome. He takes all this a lot harder than his more famous colleagues or friends in poetry. But he never, you know, he wears it lightly. The contradictoriness saves him from that sort of fundamentalist 
yeah. extreme um, kind of politics that Pound and, and Elliot... Bunting, notably, was one of the <coughs> very first to chastise Pound for his anti-Semitism. 1936 or something, he writes to Ezra Pound, who's his friend for years. This is beneath you. It's a beautiful letter, and I'm hoping there'll be an edition of the letters. Alex Niven is working on them. The letters are great. He's, one of, he's the first person to see through Ezra's bigotry, and he makes no excuses for Pound either. You know, he doesn't know why he's crazy the way people... And he sort of stays friendly to Pound, but he's very clear. I think his mind was a lot clearer in some ways than other modernist poets. I mean, Zukovsky is quite off of, you know, homophonic translations. Bunting was, in a certain way, more the poet than these other guys. They had to be... This is my own sort of idiosyncratic contention, but you know, Eliot had to be this character, T.S. Eliot. We think of him the way he wanted us to think of him. Bunting, you can't quite do that. There's no one way to think about this guy. That sort of inscrutability is a different kind than the difficulties that enter into other modernist poets. They're difficult, the texts are difficult. In Bunting's case, the texts are not so difficult, but the stories behind them are difficult. There's a more human scale, there's something moving and compelling about all these things. I mean, he sort of messes up marriages and messes up all kinds of things. But you sort of love him. You can't not. I don't think very many people could say they loved T.S.L. Love, love Tom. I loved him. You know, it's just so strange. But when even now, the, the surviving people knew Bunting, the devotion, the dedication, the respect, it's just astonishing and really kind of unprecedented, I think. In your book, that you sort of pursue that notion of Pound meeting Ginsburg and sort of saying how suburban his... That's the story that, you know, Ginsburg tells, the, yeah. the, the famous but story. But I like the way in the book you, those annotations lead you to the end of the, yeah. end of the story. I think so. I mean, one, I mean, there was so much that couldn't go into this book. I mean, when, when you work on Bunting, you sort of work on Pound. Mm. <laughs> And I was able to dig around, and I found a lot of audio recordings that were made of Pound during his supposedly silent periods. He wasn't really silent, in fact. Some of these are on YouTube now, strangely enough, you know, where he's being prodded to speak, and he says a few things. And he's in Spol at a poetry festival in Spoleto, and he recites Lowell's versions of Dante. It's really moving. You know, you want to burst into tears. You hear, you do hear regret and grief in Pound's voice at the very end. And it is very powerful to reflect that so many decades earlier, Bunting told him that what he was doing was beneath him. And it's almost as if, I don't think Pound ever sort of articulated anything that Bunting was right, but he knew, he knew that, and he knew it early. And I think it was a tragedy for Pound. Bunting sort of steered away of the common commonest kinds of prejudices of British and American poets of the time. And, and there's a generosity of spirit in that that I think is hard to account for. He's sort of immune to the basest things in people. Very, it's just lovely. It doesn't mean he was a nice guy all the time or anything. But he sidesteps ter terrible, terrifying behavior. His uh, sort of Northumbrian identity and the Northumbrian voice—it is a sort of synthetic thing, and it's a—it's an artificial thing. But it's—it's it's something that allowed him to, again, it's—it's—it's non-fundamentalist. He—he distinguished between the sort of cultural traditions of 
the north of England, and, and which he said they remained intact over the centuries. But and distinguished between those and any kind of racial narrative, he says the blood's changing all the time, the race changes all yeah. the time, but the cultural traditions just somehow remain. So even that distinction is just such a... It's one of the heartwarming things about hunting when you... Well, it was for me when I came across that. Yeah. It allows him to be rooted in a place, but it, without pursuing it into the kind of madness that pounded. I think, Paul, in your in your review of the Burton biography, did, didn't you describe Bunting as 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 a, as a sort of species of conservative anarchist? Am I remembering that right? <laughs> that that I sounds did. like that and sounds which like I'd a love paradox. To take credit for, but I think Bunting described himself that way. <laughs> <laughs> And that sounds to me like a sort of capacious enough and paradoxical <laughs> enough category to, co to contain him. Are oh, there other questions? Could you say more about the Northern Voice? The oh, yeah, I wanted to say that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, no, I was, I was, when I was coming over here, I thought, shall I tell them the story? And then I think I will. So Bunting's the voice, when you hear him re reading his work, there's an element of, of Northumbrian accent in there, a very strong one. But to someone from Northumberland, I, I hear there's certain vowels that are completely that sound very posh to my ear. You'll sometimes say, oh, instead of oh. I mean, from Northumbria, oh, that can last, it can last all afternoon, you know, oh. And well, the trilled R's. And then the, it, sometimes he trills there, like rolling your R's. And other times he does the burr, the Northumbrian burr. But I, I have heard accents that are like buntings. When I talk about Basil Bunting, Neil Astley's around, and he listens very carefully. And he he's a real steward of Bunting's work, a real hero. I think, he you know he's the editor at Blood Axe Books and a wonderful editor, wonderful press. He'll listen to this. I'm not in a position to say it. You are, but other people too who knew Bunting have said that the accent he used when he read his poems was not quite. It wasn't really a typical sort of Northumbrian accent. And so Neil Astley, who is a northerner, will listen to no, me. No, but he's not. Well, he's, 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 he, is, he lives <laughs> there. He lives <laughs> he there. He lives there now. And he will but come up to me. I wish he were here because he would do it. He'd come up to me and he'd say, if you listen, there are still old men who sound exactly like Basil Bunting. <laughs> the one person I've heard who does, it really did sound like Bunting, was my neighbor where I was growing up, um, Ad Michael, as in old Michael, to distinguish from his son, young Michael. <laughs> and... Um, Ad Michael did have the burr and he had the, the, the lilting um, and it's a it's an old sort of rural Northumberland accent that's not at all <coughs> Newcastleish mm -hmm. and um, he really um, did sound like Bunting and I was remembering coming over here a time and the the Northumbrian burr is where you don't say R you sort of go instead of R so and it's really rare now <laughs> to hear it anyway Ad Michael did this and I remember one time him he, him and my dad were working on the on their cars in their adjacent driveways and Ad Michael asked my dad to pass him a piece of cloth but said, my dad's name's Harry, Harry can you thrash a rag? <laughs> <laughs> so, and my dad is, you know, killed himself laughing. And, uh, but Ad Michael did it as a joke, it was a, he, he was saying Harry can you throw us a rag? And he would contrive situations to use the uh, in little clusters, because he liked it and he enjoyed doing it. He was sort of looking after this little bit of accent or dialect by keeping it current and passing it around. That's what Bunting is is doing, in his in partly in the poems and partly in the in putting together that voice. Yeah. And yet, on the page, Bunting is not a dialect poet. No, no. he's not. You know, Barnes or you know, he's never 
never, except with the poem, what the chairman told Tom. You know, he doesn't do the voices. <laughs> and, and so it's intriguing to me that when he read his own poems, he did that voice, but on the page, it's not there. So he knew, he had to have known that most people would encounter his poems on the page. But he left that note to Brickflat saying yeah. that you won't be able to understand this because you don't know the dialect. So, <laughs> so he, he even wants you to hear it even when it's on the page, where as you say, it's not on the yeah. page really, and you can understand it perfectly well. Well, for a guy keenly interested in music and kind of a music expert, actually, and music figures into the structures of the poems, which he called sonatas and things like that, and he, he spent his whole life writing about, listening to, thinking of, documenting things about music. Hopkins scores his poems so that the performance can be replicated. No one ever prints them the way Hopkins did this. But So Bunting could have devised a way to make that music of the, the accent somehow appear on the page, but he never does that. I mean, it was a decision not to, and it was important to him to be heard in that act. Another strange sort of contrarian thing. I should have said at the beginning, I'm very grateful to Catherine Marriott, whose idea this event was really, and who did a lot of work in helping to to set it up. And also to um, Alice from Primrose Hill Book, who's brought along lots of copies of this handsome new edition, which are on sale tonight. And to Patrick Robinson in the uh, digital media department here, who's helped with recording this, which is hopefully going to go up from Poetry Society in some form soon. But most of all, I'm grateful to Paul for coming down from yes, Durham and for, and for Don Cher for being here with us over from Chicago. And maybe now we can have a glass of wine. But before that, thank Paul and Don for being here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society, visit www.poetrysociety.org.uk.